Good morning. If you've bought, brought your Bibles with you this morning, uh, please turn to Romans chapter 13. I was apologizing to my co-pastor Steve. I realized from the church calendar today is Pentecost, and I probably should have had a nice sermon about the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, but instead I was concentrating on finishing up Romans. We've been in Romans for a while. We've just looked at Paul's presentation of the gospel and why Paul was presenting the gospel this way. We've talked about the situation of the church in Rome and how more than any other New Testament church, the church in Rome was really divided uh, between Jews and Gentiles and even between social classes. In fact, it wouldn't be one church. It would be several house churches meeting in Rome. We've given the background of how Jews had been expelled from Rome under the Emperor Claudius and only, had only recently returned at the time Paul was writing this letter and how that caused divisions between the Gentiles and Jews that weren't really present in other churches in the New Testament. And so Paul has been presenting the gospel and he's been using it as a way to show both sides that they need each other, to show the Gentile converts how what they've what they've received is firmly rooted in Judaism. They've been grafted onto those roots and to in turn turn to the Jews and say, but you also are in the same situation as the pagans because even though you had the law, you didn't keep it. It didn't do what it was intended to do in you. But that also was part of God's plan. And he used it to bring about a more full measure of redemption in his son, Jesus Christ, that this was, this was always the intent from from the moment God began his plan of redemption. That's what Paul's been doing in Romans so far. Last week, we talked about how Christianity would not have looked like religion to the world around it, specifically the Roman world, as in Rome, religion consisted of making your public sacrifices and praying, and that was it. It really didn't have much to do with how you lived your day-to-day life. They would have consigned that to the realm of philosophy. So to the Romans, the Christians did not look like religious people because they weren't doing the things religion did. And we talked in chapter 12 about how the place of temple sacrifice in both the Jewish tradition and pagan tradition was actually, that place was taken by the way we lived our lives. We use the phrase, a living sacrifice, the way you live your life. Your life and how you live it is embodied worship. And then Paul begins to talk about how that is expressed in love. It may not look like it because of the way Romans 13 is going to start out, but this chapter is continuing that theme of living in love, of making your life a living sacrifice, of that being your proper worship. It's continuing this theme that our proper worship of God is our embodied lives. So if you'll read with me, starting in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. 
Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This also is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And to this, understanding the present time, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of the Lord. As I said, this is going to be about how to live in love. So it's interesting that we start here with this passage on submitting to the authorities. Now, that's not... The, the verse breaks and chapter breaks in, in our Bibles are not, of course, original to the text. They're added later by people in, as a means to try and break down the Bible and, and to find things easily, to reference things, to get everybody on the same page. The traditional Jewish method, method of, of indicating a scripture would just be to start the beginning of the passage of the scripture. You'd quote the beginning of the verse and people would understand what you were referring to. Like if we wanted to talk about John 1.1, 1, 1, we'd go, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Instead of saying John 1.1, 1, 1, now we can say John 1.1, 1, 1, it's a little shorter. So this break here in 13, that's, that's a little artificial. That's not organic to Paul's letter. This is actually flowing with him talking about being a living sacrifice and loving, and this fits in with that. So why does that fit in here with Paul? Sometimes you can get the feeling with Paul that Paul has so many things he wants to talk about, and I can definitely emphasize with this as a teacher, you have so many things you want to talk about that sometimes you end up like being a three-year-old telling a story, and you're like, oh, yeah, but, and then, but that's not what's going on here. Paul is putting this in here because this is part of how we love our neighbor, and this is part of the argument that he's developing. Well, why is it here? Like a lot of things in Romans, Paul is actually pointing this text two ways at once. He's still speaking to this church that's divided between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And this passage is going to address each of them in different ways. 
at this time in the Roman Empire, at the time Paul's writing this, we have a new Roman emperor who's come up, and it's Nero. Now, if you know anything about Roman history, you will thank Nero, and you will think, uh-oh, bad guy, burn Rome, burn Christians, fiddle while Rome's burning and all that. This is still early in his, in his reign, when he is actually still a lot under the influence of his teachers, who were Stoic philosophers, and he's actually, he's actually kind of a refreshing change from the emperors that have gone before him. So this is a peaceful time. Jews are actually doing pretty well. But it has always been a difficult thing for the Jews to be under another empire. Ever since the Babylonian exile, there's been this longing in the heart of the Jews to have that be that nation and that people of God again. And we'll see this in the province of Judea, in the Jewish homeland. We'll see that in their continuing to look for a Messiah other than Jesus, to look for a military leader. This will come to a head in AD 70 with the Jewish revolt most people know about, when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is, is sacked. It still won't end then, actually. Even after the temple is destroyed, there's going to be a lot of still looking for a revolutionary leader. There's going to be these periods of banditry. And then in 135, the Jews are going to rise up again. They're actually going to kick the Romans out of Judea entirely and for three years have an independent Jewish state again and then be utterly destroyed to where the Jerusalem is totally leveled. Jews are banned on pain of death from being in the city and it's rebuilt as totally a pagan city. But there's always this unrest at this time with being under somebody else, even if they're treated well. This comes up in several ways. One of the ways is they don't like paying taxes. They consider that an imposition. And it's more, I don't think anybody likes paying taxes. I don't know anybody that in April, yeah, I'm getting, can I get an amen? <laughs> but, you know, nobody's like mailing that check off to the IRS. Woo, yeah. Or, you know, saying I'm only getting this much back. Or, you know, every Friday opening your envelope and going, oh, why are they taking so much out? No, we don't like paying taxes. But for them, paying taxes almost seemed like worshiping a foreign power. So there's a lot of unrest there. In the Roman Empire, it will actually get so bad outside of Judea that about 115, there's a Jewish rebellion in several of the provinces over just these kind of issues uh, that just devastates parts of the Roman Empire. The, the Jewish revolt in North Africa is going to leave part of that province so depopulated that the Romans are actually going to have to bring in people from other parts of the empire to resettle it because that's where a lot of the empire's food comes from. So there's this, there's this natural Jewish unrest. They, can, they, they don't want to be under a foreign power and they consider it kind of a betrayal of God. So when Paul is speaking to the Jewish part of the church, that's going to be in the background. We know you're under a foreign power. We know you've thrown off a foreign power before. Specifically under the Maccabees, they, they restored their independence, throwing off the Persians for a little bit. He says, but, but don't think of it that way. This is You need to think of this like, like when the Jews went into exile and Jeremiah told them, he said, Pray for, the, pray for the prosperity of the cities you're going to, because when they prosper, you'll prosper. So for them, he's saying, this is how you should look at authority. 
It's going to be addressed differently to the Gentile believers. We talked last week about what Roman civic religion was like, what religion was like in Rome. You made public sacrifices to the gods, to the emperor, to the empire, to the spirit of the empire. You also, in your home, every day when you were at home, just for the good of your family, you would be doing sacrifices to the household gods. And Paul said, that's, that's not what we do anymore. We have a living sacrifice. Well, there might be this tendency, because religion in Rome was so bound up with civic good, if you were a Gentile believer and saying, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm not sacrificing to the emperor anymore. I'm not offering incense to the spirit of the empire. I'm not doing that. Maybe, maybe I'm just my own guy now, and I don't have to worry about participating in civic life at all. Maybe that's part of what I've given up along with the sacrifice and everything. Paul's saying no. There is a good and legitimate purpose for government. We live in a country that prizes uh, individual liberty and freedom and rights. And we sometimes we can forget about the benefits of government. It, it's kind of a cliche and a given that in certain circles that less government is better. But government does, in God's economy, have a legitimate purpose. When people live together, ever since the fall, when people live together, we don't do it well if we're not organized. People begin to look to their own interests against the interests of their neighbors. And societies don't flourish without organization. So when Paul is speaking here about the purpose of the authorities and submitting to the authorities. He's talking about them. This isn't a blank check to authorities, but this is an acknowledgement that there's a legitimate role of government and it's necessary for the flourishing of everybody. If you doubt this, it was a great example of what happens when you have absolutely no government. Uh, in Africa in the 1990s, it was a country on the east coast of Africa, Somalia. And Somalia had a checkered history, and they had they'd kind of had a strongman government come to power, uh, which was not popular, but it did stabilize things, and it ensured certain basic needs were met. But it was overthrown in 1990, and Somalia descended into chaos. It, it serves as a very good example of why you like to have government, because without government... Things we take for granted just don't happen. You know, every day, I, every day I come up here, I'm driving on a highway. I can safely travel between Lake Winnipesaukee and here. That comes about because there's a government ensuring peace, ensuring a safe, safe standard for the roadways, ensuring by and large people are observing traffic laws. Maybe... Some states to the south of us, less so than, <laughs> than ours. But, but still, there's a basic level of safety. We can do things. One of the reasons the church was able to spread so successfully, so quickly in the time it did, was because of government. We're used to thinking of the Roman half of the church, network of roads, peace. You could travel in the Roman Empire without a real fear of bandits. Most of the history of the world, 
Once you got away from your village, you weren't safe. So there are very definite benefits here. The same thing actually to the east, there's the Parthian Empire. We don't think about that in church history. But that was the way that the church, at the same time it was spreading to the west, it was going to the east. The apostle Thomas died in India. He brought Christianity to India. About the same time Christianity is reaching Ireland, there's actually Christians in Nepal. We don't think about that now because church history, world history kind of swept that aside. But that's a benefit of there being stable government. This is not a blank check for governments. This doesn't mean that whatever a government does is good. There are times when it will be necessary to confront power and not go along with it. But there are right ways and wrong ways to do it. We'll see Paul. We'll see the Apostle Paul. And he is actually, when he engages with the Roman authority, he, he kind of confronts them with their own laws. He said, like, hey, you treated me this way, and I'm a Roman citizen. That's not part of your own laws. But he did it with respect. He didn't belittle the governor. He didn't belittle the town authorities. It's okay to question the motives of government. It is okay to criticize the policies, especially in our context in North America. We don't have a king. We don't have an emperor. People can mistake. People can sometimes make the argument, try and say that the president is, is like, he's not. He's actually a representative of the people. We have decided in North America, in the United States in particular, in our form of government, that the ultimate authority rests with the people and everybody who is in government is our elected representative. So it's okay to criticize the policies. We are the people in charge. We can say we don't like this policy. For a politician to then go, well, what about Romans 13? Yeah, you're not, no. <laughs> don't, don't try and use it that way. That's not what it means. Sometimes governments go completely off the rails. There have been times in history where countries have become very, very, very evil. And it's necessary to subvert the government to confront that evil. Not always, but it usually breaks down into this. If you're interested in confronting the government to defend something about yourself, to defend your own territory, probably as Christians, you need to th we need to think about that. Because one of the things we're continually called to do is not work for our own rights, but to surrender them to advance the gospel and to love the people around us. If you're confronting a government policy because you're, because you're protecting somebody who has no power, then that's a different thing. But by and large, government is intended to bless us. It's intended to bring human flourishing, even in bad situations even in really bad situations. If you were to look in Germany in the 1940s, we would say that is an example of a government doing very bad things that probably needed to be replaced. But at the same time, if your house catches on fire, you're glad that the part of the government that has a fire department is still functioning. There's a lot of common blessing even in the midst of bad governments. One of the tragedies of history is that a lot of time people, for principled reasons, have confronted a government in power, 
but they have been so overwhelmed with the need to replace that power structure, they don't think about everything else that does. So you have a revolution, you overthrow the bad guys, and now nobody's got drinkable water, nobody's got food coming in. So there's a lot of blessing even, even left in the worst governments. So when we're submitting to authorities, we're not saying that we approve of everything they do, but we are saying we approve of the blessing of God to our neighbors that's coming through them. And that we're trying to be good people, good, loving Christians to our neighbors. And uh, if we look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter's going to put it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from... Whoops, wait a minute. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. The emperor is not a good guy. As a matter of fact, it will be, it will be almost another 40 years before Rome gets emperors who are actually good people by the standards of that we would most judge people. And those good people, those good emperors, and there's going to be a series of them, one of the things they did best was they persecuted Christians. It's sad. They actually were good and lawful emperors who weren't ruling out of personal avarice or their own whims in contrast to the emperors that had gone before them. But they still couldn't... Uh, couldn't wrap their heads around what was going on with the church because to them, the church, church looked subversive. They, these people aren't offering sacrifices to the emperor. And they wouldn't understand that that's not because they didn't appreciate the empire. It's because they said, well, the emperor is not God. He's God's representative, but he's not God. So we can't sacrifice to him. The Romans be a long time before they could wrap their heads around that. But that's the posture we're supposed to have. And Paul will go on from this discussion of authority, and he gets to this section. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And he makes the case that all the commandments are fulfilled if we love our neighbors. If we love our neighbors, we're not going to want their things. We're not going to want the blessings that God has given for them. We're going to fulfill the law. This is why Christ could say, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came, I actually came to fulfill what it intended. Because if you walk in this way, you'll fulfill, you won't injure your neighbors. You won't be doing all these things that the law was intended to prevent because you're going to love your neighbors and you're going to seek their blessing. You're going to do no harm. And he's going to wind this up. Why do we live this way? Why do we make our lives a living sacrifice? We do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. 
So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. Most of us in the church, we're pretty good at avoiding carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality, debauchery. But dissension and jealousy, that's the same category of things. There are entire denominations founded over the wording of, of a covenant. That's, that's not the gospel. But why do we live that way? Because we understand that times have changed. There's a tremendous desire in 21st century evangelicalism in North America. It's sad that I have to think to say 21st century and not 20th century. It's brain, you know, it's, it's worse than writing the wrong year on your checks, getting the wrong century actually getting the wrong millennium is really bad. But there's been this tremendous focus on, you know, last days. When Jesus was taken up into heaven, we entered the last days biblically. The church lived in that expectation. Indeed, one of the reasons people always say, you know, the, the gospels weren't really written until 40 years after Jesus left, you know, that's kind of suspicious. Well, one of the reasons is everybody thought that everything was going to wind up soon. And it wasn't until it hadn't yet and people started passing away that the church started thinking, we better write this stuff down because maybe we're going to be here longer than a generation and the people that were all firsthand witnesses to this will have passed away. So we should, we, while we still have everybody, we should start writing this down. But they lived in that expectation. We should always live in that expectation because we don't know how, how long it's going to be, how long it will be till Christ returns. But we understand the world has already changed. It's not, hasn't reached where it's going to be, but it's already different. When Christ rose from the grave, everything changed. And we're in this place in between. The old way of things has passed away. God's plan of redemption has broken into the world. It's not finished yet. We're here as agents of that change. Getting back to Europe in 1940, since I used Germany as a, an example of when government is bad, part of the final liberation of, of Germany came about, of, of Europe came about on uh, June of 1944 when the Western Allies landed back in Europe to try and bring about the complete end of the Nazi regime. The Russians had been fighting from the, from the east for some time. But we landed. And before the invasion of Normandy, June 6, 1944, had to throw a date in, you know. Occupational hazard of being a historian. But when we were doing that, that invasion, the night before the invasion, one of the things that happened was there were a number of airborne troops dropped behind the enemy lines to get things ready to cut bridges to keep the Germans from being able to get support to the beaches when the Allies came ashore. And there was a variety of behavior among these paratroopers that were dropped. Some did what they were supposed to. Some did stupid things. And actually, some broke into wine cellars and got drunk. And yeah, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. But some just kind of hid and waited for the troops that were coming 
from the beach to, to get to them and rescue them. That's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're not supposed to, ah, we'll just, we'll ford up until God gets back. It can be tempting. People will use language like, well, we're a remnant. We're, we're holding on to the end. We're never called to be hold, hold on to the end. We are part of the means of redemption God is using to bring life to the world. While we're here, while we're waiting for the troops to, to come in mass, we're supposed to be being agents of the kingdom because we know the day is near and it's getting nearer. And one thing you can absolutely be sure of is the day is nearer than it was when we first believed. Whether it's tomorrow, whether it's 10 years from now, whether it's a thousand years from now, the day is still nearer. As I've said many times, I did not grow up in a family of faith. And to me, one of the coolest things when I first became a Christian in college at a state university was reading in one of my classes, because I was taking history of the English language, because, you know, historian. But if you're going to read the early, early English, you're going to be reading a ton of praise literature, because pretty much all that's written in Old English is praise literature and accounts of battles. You can only read so many accounts of battles. So you read a lot of praise literature. And I just remember this feeling one day, reading a poem that was written in the 8th century and realizing the monk that wrote that was thinking about Christ the same way I was, had the same expectations. And I guess before that time, I thought, well, if you're in the past, you're closer to Christ, it ought to be easier to be a Christian. No, this guy's 700 years after Christ. He only knows what's been passed on to him. And yet he has that hope. And he is living like, could be any day, could be tomorrow. That's how we're supposed to live. And because of that, we're supposed to live these lives of a love because the way we worship God, our sacrifice, we talk about Sunday being a worship service, but in true Christian life, the way we live our lives is our worship. That is our sacrifice how we live day to day. Do we live for the love of the people around us? Do we live for the love of our neighbors?